here we are again. Stories to make sense of it all. And it's Christmas. Nothing like church bells to make Christmas feel right. Those aren't church bells from Paducah, Kentucky, or from Detroit or Seattle. Those are from Venice, Italy. Those are like real church bells, right? So it's Christmas and year's end. And when we come to this time of the year, singing, music comes into play in a big way. Seasonal music, the historic, the classics like Away in a Manger, O Holy Night, sung by Nat King Cole, or O Come All Ye Faithful by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, or some of the fun songs that are aftermarket songs, if you will, like uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or, or Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. The singing of songs, the giving of gifts, sort of central, not sort of central, it is central, to the Christmas season. Two years ago, when we did this podcast, I sat down with a classroom, I think about 12, 14 preschoolers, three and four-year-olds, just to get their sense of Christmas. And I asked them about giving. And this was their response. That's a hard question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't like I don't like doing presents. I don't All like right, eating. here we go again. You you like you like getting them. Right. Uh, yeah. Here we go again. Okay. And then they had a song they wanted to sing for me, which is the the great truth about when Jesus being born happens, you need to tell somebody. And so the songwriter said, Go tell it on the mountain. You may have a favorite sentimental Christmas song. I do. And I like all the classics that are biblically centered. But this one isn't that. And I just want to set the scene for you. Let me set the scene. It's World War II, South Pacific. It's December 1943. You're east of Australia in the New Hebrides Islands, what is now called Vanuatu. You can look it up on a map. It's out there. If you're a kid from Des Moines, Iowa, or Prescott, Arizona, you're a long, long way from home. On a battleship, the USS North Carolina, a massive warship, manned by 2,339 sailors. Your country's at war. It's in, in conflicts that stretch across the world. But you're 19 years old, or you're a, you're a young dad, 26 years old. You're a patriot, a sailor in the United States Navy, or maybe a Marine. And orders are orders. And the USS North Carolina has orders. So even thousands of miles out on the South Pacific aboard that ship on Christmas Eve, you're thinking about Christmas, but, but you won't be able to have the traditional church service or a peaceful Christmas day because orders have come in. The USS North Carolina would set sail Christmas morning to provide support for a carrier attack. Some weeks earlier, in October of that year, Bing Crosby had recorded a song that would become a gold record in 43, the most requested song by servicemen overseas. It's I'll Be Home for Christmas. That's the song I like. It goes like this. 
I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. And like the last line says, if you're on the battleship North Carolina, you know it will be only in your dream. But unknown to you, the ship's chaplain, E.P. Wubbins, has made some plans. Months earlier, in August, he'd collected $5 from the fathers in the crew for a grand total of $2,404.25 and had written to Macy's department store enclosing the funds and requesting that Christmas presents, Wubbin suggested a $3 limit for each gift, be purchased and mailed to the 729 sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters of those men on the ship. Whether a football, a raggedy ant, a stuffed panda, or a baseball bat, the attached gift card was to say simply that the gift was from a loved one and his shipmates on the USS North Carolina. Wubbins went on to type, We realize that we are asking a great deal, but you will be adding greatly to the happiness of our children and to our own Christmas joy out here in one of the war zones. Incidentally, we hope that a bit of that joy will reflect on you and your staff of workers. Well, the store's staff of workers had gone much farther than selecting, wrapping, and shipping. With the addresses of the recipients in hand, Macy's invited all of the children and mothers who were able to come and filmed them opening their gifts and telling, and in some cases singing, their missing husbands and fathers, hello and Merry Christmas. Before they sail back into battle the next morning, the chaplain will gather the sailors and play that movie from home. The effect of that flickering black-and-white newsreel, the high-excited voice, the sweet laughter of youngsters, the loving smiles, longing eyes of a spouse, in a darkened hold of a ship the length of two-and-a-half football fields on a Christmas Eve, is hard to picture, a longing too deep to describe, a homesickness too great to express, a surprise too joyous to ever forget. What a great story. I love that story. What a great Christmas. Somebody in 1943, several somebodies, took the time to put flesh to a dream. Well, that's what the Christmas story is, isn't it? Flesh being put to a dream. That's the whole other song. That's the whole other story. Almost 2,000 years before that 1943 Christmas, God himself, I believe, put flesh to his dream. Here's what it sounds like. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 1 through 14. By the way, off-Broadway right now, there's a fellow named Ken Jennings who has a one-man show on the Gospel of John that he's memorized. And apparently it's a great hit. So here we go, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. 
He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Let me just move down to verse 14. This is how it describes um, God's putting flesh to the dream. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, the word made flesh has a name. His name is Jesus, the one who saves, or Emmanuel, God with us. It's believed by many scholars that those first 14 to 18 verses of the Gospel of John are a hymn. Not any kind of hymn, but a song put to Hebrew phrasing because Hebrew songs uh, have repetition in them. So when you hear, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's a Hebraic thing. But what does it mean, the Word become flesh? This is not just God coming to man, but becoming a man. I've known a bunch of men <laughs> who tried to be God, right? That doesn't work out too well. But this is the Almighty God becoming a man. Word become flesh is the greatest miracle. It's staggering. The word that is used for that is incarnation, in the flesh. Tim Keller, uh, pastor emeritus at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, wrote a little book a few years back called Hidden Christmas, and he quotes a theologian, a scholar by the name of J.I. Packer, about this incarnation thing, and I want to read it to you. J.I. Packer puts it starkly. God became man, the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. So there you have it. Infinite spirit puts on flesh, what theologians called the God-man. Arthur Pink was a commentator back in the last century, and he wrote about another piece of this where it says in that prologue to John, and he came and tabernacled, he camped out among us. He just had some thoughts on what back in the Old Testament, uh, in the Israeli community, the tabernacle represented. And I'd just like to read you the high points of that just very quickly. These are just a few of the things he says. The tabernacle was a temporary appointment. This is a tent that moved as the children of Israel wandered in the desert. The tabernacle was for use in the wilderness. Outwardly, the tabernacle was mean, humble, unattractive in appearance. Number four, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. The tabernacle, number five, was therefore the place where God met with men. The tabernacle, number six, was the center of Israel's camp. Number seven, it was the place where the law was preserved. 
Eight, it was the place where sacrifice was made. Nine, it was the place where the priestly family was fed. Ten, it was the place of worship. All of those ideas would be in the reader's mind when it says that this word made flesh, this Jesus person, camped out with us. When I read texts like this, I say, okay, so that's how a theologian sees it, or that's how just the casual reader might see it. But how would some professional see it, like a, like a medical professional? How might a medical doctor approach that moment? Let's say the virgin birth, which is the expression of that. I have a friend, Dr. Mark Baustrid, who's a retired surgeon. Uh, he hails from South Africa. But just on the spur of the moment the other day, I asked him, what do you think about this? What comes to your mind when you think about the word become flesh? My medical mind um, starts to think about the, the two little cells that would be the sperm and the egg normally combining their genetic material, their chromosomes. And, and I ponder, were, were Jesus' chromosomes half from Mary yeah. Um, and half from special ones God created for the event. <laughs> does God have chromosomes? <laughs> he well, doesn't have well, chromosomes. Well, if we're made in his image. Would, yes. would he get, you know, exactly. That's a little deep for me right there. It is. So, and then you think, well, did, did God just create that whole uh, blastocyst that that's the little um, clump of cells that comes as the two cells join and start to grow and it's divide. It's called a blastocyst. Yes. Okay. And um, and was that was <laughs> that all? Was it blast. all God's yeah. blast? Yeah. yeah. Was that all God's um, genetic material that he, that he created for himself for Jesus okay. for the event? And then I think of the the mystery of as a doctor seeing a patient who had been alive and is now just a corpse and that mystery of life you know you think of god made adam from the dust and breathed and he became a living soul right. and that, that very essence of life that somehow is the magic spark you know you look at a light bulb and it's dead and useless but animated with electricity and it's brilliant right and and you think of of Mary's body somehow being infused, suffused with divine, a divine presence growing within her. And anyway, uh, you can hear I'm rambling and I think my medical mind can't quite, in one sense, the analyst wants to know what was that genetic material sure. in those two little cells? Yeah. Um, or was it all just purely God's let there be and it, and it and was? It you can't get your medical mind around it, and I certainly get, can't get my puny storyteller mind around it. But thanks for your input. I love that. So our little exchange was complete, and uh, we were off mic. At least I thought we were off mic, but I happened to pick up just this little piece uh, at the end that, uh, that Dr. Bostrom shared. I loved it. It is a ponder, isn't it? I gotta ask him, how did you... So I just thought that for this particular subject that is so uh, central to life and way beyond this season, that i just like to get other inputs. So I talked to Mark Baustrid, and then I thought, well, I'll call my 
my old friend who's been in government forever. He's been in government and politics. And, but beyond that, he's one of the best thinkers I know. And um, I've known him for 70 years. And uh, his name's John Ashcroft, former Attorney General of the United States. So I just called him, spur of the moment, out of the blue, and said this to him. What comes to mind when I say, and the word became flesh? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that the values, character, and nature of God is capable of being resident in a bodily way and in, 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 in a personable way, if that's the right word. To what degree do you see the birth of Jesus as a watershed in human history? Well, I believe that God the Father sends Jesus to clarify his nature and to be a more accurate representation and understanding than had previously been understood by mankind. And then, of course, the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. It's transitioned from a dwelt among us to dwelt in us. Yeah. Jesus makes this clear. So that I and my Father, my Father and me, and I and you, this is a different way in which the word becomes flesh. I wrote a song about a hundred years ago, uh, <laughs> Trinity, and it starts out, Oh God, my Father, in my dust breathed soul. Sort of, it, it, it talks about the role of the Almighty and, and sharing the, quote, inspiration or the breath of God, the soul of God, perhaps, in the dust of man. The second verse is, O living word, be flesh again in me. And I think the invitation that we become the word made flesh is uh, one that I don't, you know, it's probably a heresy that only I engage in, but I sort of think that the, the word made flesh is, is a privileged opportunity and the intent of the Almighty for mankind, that the character and nature and values of God be resident of resident in and apparent in our flesh. I think this grand story about word became flesh is so significant, we need to give it more time. How's that for the understatement of the century? And when we come back the next time, I have another doctor friend I'd like you to meet. We want to talk about what it means to be fully human, fully alive, what that looks like. But as we slide out today, uh, I'd like to have a little music in the background. We have a music room at our house. It's Well, it's a music room. It's a quilting sewing room. It's a playroom for grandkids when they come over. Uh, but we have an old upright Baldwin in there. And sometimes early in the morning, Ruth, my wife, will get up and she'll go in and play old hymns and gospel songs. And the other day, she was playing uh, just some Christmas carols. And uh, she's very much in tune, but this old bald one is a wee bit out of tune for you music majors, so you'll probably hear that. But I just love hearing her play and the feeling she puts into it. So here we go. We're going to go away with Away in a Manger, and we'll catch you in a couple of days. God bless. <laughs> 